So this morning we look to Romans chapter 6, and we'll be looking at Romans 6, verses 1 to 6. And I wanted to read, uh, at least this morning, I wanted to read the whole the whole section to you, the whole chapter, because I believe it sets before us a context. Uh, so we'll look at Romans 6, 1 and 6, and then the next time we're together, we'll look at that next section as well. Uh, but Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer or death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we say? Because we are not under law, but under grace. Or shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification the out and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
May God bless the reading of his word. As we look to this text, I've entitled this sermon Alive to Christ because that is the focus of the text. Even though you have many things that are taking place within Romans 6, uh, essentially what it's dealing with is being born again. And not only being born again, but also the new life in Christ, walking in the newness of life in Christ. So essentially what the whole chapter is dealing with is being alive to Christ. But also it is said against being dead in sin, being dead in sin. And I would even say dead to righteousness, dead to because when you're dead in your sins, you're dead to righteousness. And when we look to Paul, the apostle and what he is saying, especially in the first verse of Romans, chapter six, we find our context for Romans 6 and many of the verses that precede this text, but we also specifically look at what is said in the few verses before this one. As Paul is comparing the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus and justification by faith, that is God declaring the sinner righteous based on what Christ has accomplished, and it is a one-time legal act, Resulting in our position of being cleansed, sanctified, but also resulting in progressively being sanctified, meaning an ongoing cleansing from unrighteousness throughout the duration of the believer's life. And that leads to glorification. That is seeing Christ in eternity, being in eternal fellowship with him and having eternal life. That is what Paul is focused on in the few verses beforehand and many of the verses that precede this text. But there is a charge against him. There is a charge against him. And the charge that is set against his teaching is from individuals who tried to twist what he said in the previous verses in the immediate context. Specifically, I turn your attention to Romans chapter five, verse 20. Where it says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that now his accusers, those who charged him, did not pay much attention to the so that the purpose. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul faced Accusers. We know that his teaching, Paul the Apostle's teaching, because he is the most sober of all men. And we talked about that even as we talked about the ministry of the apostles in our study time in Acts. And even as we have been looking at Daniel, that God's men are the most sober of all men. And so when we look at Paul the Apostle, he is the most sober of all men. So what he's saying, it's not up for debate. It doesn't in this particular context need to be clarified because it's divine revelation and clarified in the sense that Paul missed something. That's not the case here. What I'm saying is Paul's teaching should have been unanimously accepted. It should have been unanimously accepted without challenge. There should have been no false witness against him because, as I've said, his teachings came directly from the Lord. But yet, Paul stood accused and he stood falsely accused. And I say that that's the case because he is defending. And we'll look at another place where he is uh, launching out preemptively against an attack against his teachings. But he's defending people 
falsely accusing him of what he actually teaches. And I believe that they twisted what he said, as Peter said, was true of those who opposed Paul and opposed ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. That they twisted where he said, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul is looking at very important features of sanctification. He's looking at very important features of holiness when he makes that statement. But his accusers are looking at it from the standpoint of how do we continue in sin, knowing that the law did not eradicate sin from them, but that they just established a new law so as to justify their own self-righteousness. And if that were enough, if they were to admit and say, hello, that's what we did. We're guilty of that. They did not. What they did is they charged Paul with the same things that they themselves were doing, and they were falsely accusing Paul of doing those things. And Paul was guilty of none of it. They were guilty of it. They were the ones who were teaching, as long as you do X, Y, and Z, and you perform these rites, and you perform these things, you can continue in sin. As long as you do what we tell you to do, you may continue. You can hold on to your sin, have a form of religion that looks like you're actually dealing with your sin, but you can continue in it. Their issue is what they had an issue with what Paul said in verse 21 specifically, but everything that precedes this, because they had an issue with the fact that they were the Adamic man. They were the one who were they were the ones who were dead in their sins. They had an issue with the so that they had an issue with the fact that this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ should have led to eternal life. They had an issue with that because they were not experiencing true righteousness and they knew that. That is why they waged a war of deception against Paul, the apostle and the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So Paul rhetorically answers the charge, but I believe it's rhetorical in as much as in the moment he's not being Ask the question, but I believe that it is a feature of accusation against them. And he says as much. He says as much. He says earlier in Romans that there are opponents of his who are charging him with teaching falsely. But in this text, what he wants to do beyond that, this isn't simply a theological seminar that Paul was trying to wage. He's not doing that. It is weighted with theology. But what he's doing is he wants to explain not only the doctrine of sanctification, he wants to explain that, but he also wants to explain our nature. He wants to explain with the doctrine of sanctification, our nature of being baptized or immersed. That's essentially what baptism is. And then risen with Christ. He wants to explain those things and the purpose of an effect of our being risen with Christ. That's what he wants to explain. Why? Because those things are the answers to the false charges that Paul faced in his teaching, primarily among the Jews. And we do have a name for the false teaching that they accused him of, that they were essentially guilty of, because Paul was not against the law of Moses. They were against the law of Moses. What I'm referring to is called antinomianism. That's what his opponents charged him with. And I would argue that that's what they were guilty of. And it is a compound word which means against law. It means against law. Nomos means law. Anti means against. But we could smooth that out to mean against the law. Against the law. And specifically, they were charging that this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
was opposed to Moses because the wickedness of their self-righteous system taught that Jesus was against Moses. But Jesus already told them that Moses and Abraham worshipped him. They worshipped him. He didn't only say he was the fulfillment of it all. He was. But he said they worshipped him. They worshipped Yahweh. They worshipped God the Son. And so that was the false charge. That was the false accusation that Paul faced in general. He faced it in general. If you look at Galatians and even Corinthians and even Ephesians, you look at Acts when he leaves the Ephesian elders. There are many assaults that Paul faced, but I would say the one that he faced was people tried to uh, uh, to overturn his teaching from the Lord concerning holiness. Why do you think that is? Because the scripture tells us without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Satan does not want man to see the Lord. So Paul faced these accusations in the arena of holiness. Let me be clear with you. If you this day are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you open your mouth to testify concerning him. And you begin to teach holiness. You too will face the same assaults from the seed of the serpent. It will attack your belief, your teaching, your firmness, your convictions on holiness. The need to be holy before the Lord. So this was the false charge that Paul faced, and he faced it primarily among the Jews. He faced it primarily among the Jews. The Jewish sects that were giving way to the teaching from their predecessors, the Judaizers, were the, uh, and their predecessors being the Pharisees, the Sadducees, although they're in direct contemporary relationship, they come about a half a generation after from the scope of time and they begin to carry forward the same religion of the Pharisees but it must be of note I want to explain something before we launch into these few verses we have this morning it must be of note that this this is not as prevalent today meaning the staunch Jewish element of antinomianism it's not as prevalent today it is out there it certainly is out there and I would say that some of you some of you may face the charge of being antinomianism. Some may say that you're antinomian. But I would say that the issue today is that the antinomian label and the antinomian teaching has grabbed a foothold in the confessing evangelical church. Today, instead, what you see is many live as antinomians. They live against the law. They live against the law of Christ. And they charge you with teaching the false doctrine of sinless perfectionism. So you have people today who are actually antinomian. And they charge you with teaching sinless perfectionism when you present the standard of God's holiness before them. We all have at some point either gone through this or heard about someone who has gone through this. Or had someone, when you begin to talk about holiness... They're looking at holiness from a standpoint of, well, I'm in sin and I don't want you to know I'm in sin, but I'm in sin. So can you explain that a little more about holiness? 
And they're asking you questions because they want to entrap you so that they can lower the standard of God's righteousness and so that they can justify their sins and somehow charge you with elevating righteousness to a point of self-righteousness so that they can wallow in sin. But that's what you see today. And you see it when you present the standard of God's holiness before people. They say, wait a minute, that bar is too high. That bar is too high. And since that bar is too high, you must be teaching something falsely. If you're telling me I can't sin with impunity and yet lift my hands before the Lord, open my mouth to sing and somehow pretend I'm in fellowship with him, you are introducing a false standard. That is the charge. So I would say that many pride themselves on holding seminars and conferences and teaching about the danger of antinomianism when really they live as antinomians. What they need to be teaching about is the danger of living as antinomians, as living against the law and somehow claiming that that's holiness, because that's what the Judaizers were doing. And they accused Paul of doing that. And Paul was not guilty of that. Paul was free. He was a free man. And he was a free man who taught that God's righteousness is the only standard. And it is a righteousness you cannot attain to on your own. You can't you can't reach it by the law. It has to be given to you by the gift of grace, by the Lord Jesus Christ, on account of his cross work, on account of his sinless life, on account of his resurrection, on account of him electing and choosing whom God will. That is the standard. That is the standard of holiness and of righteousness. But I would say that Paul refutes that head on as well. Paul refutes that. That's not something I'm importing into the text. Paul refutes that kind of thinking. He refutes sinless perfectionism. Let me explain to you what that is. It is the false teaching whereby one says you can stop sinning altogether in your life. And you can attain to or reach a state of perfect holiness in this life. Paul refutes it. He refutes it in Romans 7. John the Apostle refutes it explicitly in 1 John chapter 1. But I will tell you this. That Paul is certainly dealing with trajectory, meaning direction. And he's answering the question, if I'm a Christian, what is the direction of my life? And Paul is answering that by saying the direction of your life trends upward to meeting Christ in glory in holiness. So what you go through is perfecting holiness. When you sin, as a believer, you confess your sins before God, knowing that he's righteous. If that sin has affected others, you go before others and say, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And God forgives you by his cross work. And then you begin to sin less and less throughout the duration of your life, less and less habitually. And even where you sin, your conscience is yet so tender because you have Christ indwelling you. You have God's spirit indwelling you that you are now acquainted with not only the danger of sin, but the grievous nature of sin and how it grieves God's spirit and how it grieves God. Let me pause here because that is a very important point. It's a very important point that Paul makes in this chapter. But I'll tell you, this whole business of who is a Christian and what is the Christian life look like? If you eliminate holiness, 
You don't even attempt to answer the question. But I'll tell you, in dealing with that, you can find out who truly loves the Lord when they are confronted with the reality of sin. Be it in individuals, be it in themselves. If they realize, like the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross, I cling. If that's theirs when you go before someone and they have sinned or you have sinned against them. There is a sense in which I want to be right with God. I don't want to justify it. I don't want to say, well, I sin. I sin sometimes and it's, you know, it's just me. It's human nature. To err is human. Shakespearean. I believe it's Shakespeare. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. The Bible teaches that the trajectory of your life as a Christian should trend toward righteousness. It should trend toward righteous living, righteous thinking, righteous actions. Why? Because what Paul is answering in Romans chapter 6, and he's answered it before and will answer it again, is he's dealing with nature. He's dealing with your nature. Next week we'll talk about that more because the verses explicitly lend themselves to that. But as we continue, what is certain here is that Paul needed to answer this charge head on. And why? Because it's not only the church is at stake. Many people say that all oh, the church is at stake and what they mean is their corporate entity. But what I'm saying is he had to answer that because the life of the believer was at stake. So I'm looking at the whole and the parts can't have a church without believers. Can't have believers without the church. And so in that sense, what Paul is saying is he's saying that the life of the believer is at stake. The believer's holiness is at stake. How the believer meets with God is at stake. How the believer lives this life in Christ is at stake. And so it is fitting that when men used by Satan seek to divide and conquer or to thwart the ministry of Christ among his people, they pervert not only the teaching of Christ. They do that. But they try to confuse you related to what his people are teaching. They want to confuse what we're teaching. They want to say, well, you're teaching something else. They want to raise up a caricature to accuse the believer of teaching what he does not in order for you to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They don't care what you believe. Just don't believe the truth. And we get that from Ephesians 4 elsewhere where Paul wrote that that would be the case if you don't stand firm on what Christ has actually taught. And I would say Ephesians 4 is very much joined to this text because it's what he's taught concerning how do I walk with him? How do I walk with Christ? But it's no different here. And what Paul does to introduce this all is he begins with a question. He begins with a question. And I've said it. That question he asked in Romans Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He's asking a question as a direct implication of what he said before in Romans chapter 5, verse 21. And there it was like Paul in his writing. He's very much has a lawyer type argumentation, a courtroom type argumentation. It was like Paul to anticipate arguments against his teaching. And I would say as a believer, that's the most effective tool that you have in your sanctification, in your obedience. 
If you're going to take every thought captive, you have to learn which thoughts ought to be taken captive and immediately cast down and destroyed. You don't raise them up against the teaching, but you essentially find out which ones are raised up and counter those effectively. But this was effective to make a defense for the truth in Christ Jesus. But more than that, Paul dealt with real accusation. He dealt with real accusation. We see it also in Romans chapter 3, verse 6. If we can peek there very quickly, I'll show you that this isn't simply me importing some conflict where it doesn't exist. Essentially there, he lays the foundation for what is said here. Because you see that the accusation is there in Romans 3, 5 first. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the unrighteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? So you see it there. You see it there. But Paul also, as the former Saul of Tar Tarsus, Pharisee of the Pharisees, sought to vigorously abandon and counter the very things he charged against Christians. He sought to counter those things. When he was an unbelieving teacher of the Pharisaical law, not the Mosaic law. Paul never truly held to the Mosaic law. He thought he held to the Mosaic law. For at the time of his unconversion, Saul of Tarsus twisted the law. He did not uphold it before the time of his conversion. But at the time of his conversion, Paul the Apostle, he, he taught the true nature of the law. He taught the fulfillment of the law in Christ Jesus and the purpose of the law for the Jew and Gentile. And we see much of that here in Romans. My point is, what Paul did is he countered himself. He used to spread these things. He used to spread the same lies against Christians. He used to teach the same thing, that they were against the law of Moses, that they were blaspheming the God of Israel. Until he was found out that he was the one who was doing that as Saul of Tarsus. But to our text, I say he begins with a question. And essentially he says, shall we continue in sin so that or for the purpose of the literal translation would be grace abounding? It's a question. Shall we continue in sin so that grace is abounding? And essentially the question comes from. The inadequacy of man, because due to the due to man's inadequacy in upholding the law perfectly, man is unable to do so. And the law being perfect, revealing man's sin and man being condemned under the law. What then happens when we are free from the law? That's what Paul is interested in. What happens? Because you're saying I'm leading people away from the law and that somehow they're being slaves to sin. But I'm saying that you're trying to use the law to earn salvation for yourself. So really, you're a slave to sin, not the law. You're a slave to sin because you're lawless men trying to use the law to further your sin. And you won't allow the law to do its work. But Paul is swift to refute anything to the contrary that suggests we may continue habitually practicing sin under the banner of grace in Jesus Christ. Paul is swift in it. He refutes it directly. He says, may it never be. And you know from the Pauline epistles, this is the strongest repudiation that we see in Paul's writing. When he wants to refute something the way he does, he says, may it never be. But more than that, it is the Holy Spirit, the divine author, who in pointing us to Christ wants to distance us 
from any notion that our unholiness could somehow breed holiness without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I turn you no further to what we read this morning in Exodus 32. Moses' intercession. God spare them. If you can. Remember your covenant for them if you can. You know God's answer? No, my covenant is for those who obey me. So I'm going to wipe out everyone who is disobedient. My covenant extends to those who obey me. And he says, those who do not, I destroy them. I judge them. It's the same thing here. What has changed? Nothing. There's nothing that has changed. There's nowhere in this text that says, I can continue sinning with impunity. I can continue sinning with impunity. I can even reclassify it as a struggle. With impunity. Because that's popular. and People get that from Hebrews. And we'll talk about that a little more next time. But Paul's argument is biblical. It's biblical. As we look forward and it's biblical and it is also logical. It's biblical and logical. He says in verse 2 essentially. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If we're dead to sin. How do we still live in sin? Why place the chains on your hands and lock those chains to be a prisoner again if you truly have been freed? And let me tell you, these accusers had no charge against Paul rhetorically or otherwise because they were habitually practicing sin. And they're saying, Paul, you're leading others to slavery. Paul says, no, you're a slave. You're a slave. I'm leading people to freedom. You've placed the chains on your hands again. You're trying to use the law as a means to your own salvation. And furthermore, it's not even the true nature of the Mosaic law. You've erected a law. We know that from earlier in Romans. When you're dealing with people who are living as antinomians and they try to use words such as gospel. It's not that both of you are using the gospel in different ways. It's that they're not using it at all. And you understand the true nature of it. You understand the righteousness of it. You understand where it leads. You understand what it does to the life, namely that it changes the life. But that's essentially Paul's point. The believer has been raised in Christ and to Christ. In Christ and to Christ. And therefore has died to sin. And as he says later in uh, verse 18, also here as well. Uh, but he says it explicitly there. They're now a slave to righteousness. They're slaves to righteousness. So what connection is there then to continue practicing sin as a habitual constant practice with your members while praising God for his grace with your mouth? Essentially, such a person is writing fairy tales. They're worshiping idols themselves. And what Paul is saying is that is not called regeneration. It is called unregenerate. That is not called holiness. It is called hypocrisy. Because the mouth should lead from the praise of the mouth should come from where the life is actually headed. But here in verse three, Paul furthers his argument. The answer to this charge is the nature of the believers baptism in verse three, for he says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Listen, here I am not only referring to that symbolic yet sober act of being immersed in water. For what I am about to say points to that symbol. Here I am referring to the doctrine of baptism as it relates to what the symbol points. It means what John 15 says. It means abiding in Christ. It means being immersed in Christ. There is such a rush in modern evangelicalism to rush into the water, but there is ve- there are very few people who are actually immersed in Christ. And so when they go into the world, they live like the world, even though they're dripping with the water of so-called baptism. But that's not what I'm referring to here. I'm referring to being immersed in Christ because water baptism points to that. It points to that. It's supposed to point to that. And I mention that because Paul mentions it even more so in Romans when he begins to talk about that, but also in Galatians 2, 1920. Look at it here. Galatians chapter two, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, in the flesh. He's talking about now the life that he lives now in his flesh. I live by faith in the son of God. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. He's talking about both motivation. He's talking about the effect. He's talking about the true nature of things. I do not. Listen to this. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law. Then Christ died needlessly. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to die. Because that means man can attain to it. Yet the answer to this false charge against Paul is related not only to this baptism that we have in Christ, but listen, also the fact that Christ died for sinners and those sinners were buried with him in death. He as their perfect substitute, as it says in verse four, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of of the father look at what comes next so we too might walk in newness of life none of this is theory it's all action it's all action newness of life the answer to this charge is being buried with him in death and those sinners now being born again and being raised to newness of life Well, you know, I like to continue sinning with impunity because grace, grace, God's grace, grace is greater than all my sins. So I'll just keep on sinning knowingly, habitually, somehow figure it'll work out. People see me perform. But no, what the Bible says is when you have been buried with Christ, when he has elected you unto salvation, when he has raised you up with a new nature, you begin to walk in newness of life. You don't walk like you walked when you were the old man. It's newness of life. That is another word for holiness, essentially. The holiness of the Christian testifies to the death of Christ and his resurrection. The holiness of the Christian was effect, uh, effectively 
or we could say efficaciously, but it means effectively purchased by Christ. Christ purchased your holiness. Yes, he purchased your redemption. Yes, he purchased your salvation, but he also purchased your holiness. Well, I'm not living holy. Well, have you been purchased by Christ? He purchased your holiness. So if his death and resurrection is the cause of our salvation, those two are the cause of our holiness. That's what Paul is saying. The same features that were given to you, the same power in the resurrection, the same power in the death of Christ, the same power in the sinless life, the same power that raised him from the dead is the same power that grants your sanctification, your new nature. You're walking in newness of life, your ability to live holy. It's all a divine miracle. It's that same power. So you cannot fix your mouth to testify about the power of the cross. And yet with your life, you're testifying against the power of holiness. It's impossible. It's the same power. It's the same God working that power in you. And it is a divine miracle. It's not something you mustered up in and of yourself. Now, is there a cooperative element in the sense of your progressive sanctification that is being ongoingly cleansed? Yes, there are things you need to do, but those things are given to you. You're endowed with them. You're empowered with those things. When you set your affections upon the word of Christ, when you set your mouth to testify of his goodness, even if your voice trembles, when you set your heart to walk in a compromising and hostile age, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to actually walk with Christ. I'm going to trust Christ throughout the duration of my life. I'm going to study his word. I'm going to set my affections upon what is written and seek to obey. When you do those things, it is his power in you if you are his. You're not whipping that up. And no one can whip it up for you. But it is a divine miracle by his hand. To identify his own with his death and resurrection and to cause you to live according to the standard of his righteousness. That's what Paul is saying against those who charged them. So Paul is essentially making a case. If you're charging me with something false, you don't have this power. You don't have this power. All you have is yourself and your self-righteousness trying to attain to a law that's not even the Mosaic law. Because inherent in the Mosaic law is the same divine power to point you to your sin. It's the same power. I tell you, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. That's the power to ensure we live holy, to empower us to live holy. I'll tell you what's happening in the church in the West specifically, but everywhere. It is a church without the Holy Spirit. The charismatics relegate his work to silliness and foolishness, the conservative evangelical locks him out. And in his place are men posed as mediators. But I'm talking about true Holy Spirit power, God's spirit within the believer to do what God has commanded. And at those points where you resist, you are brought to the end of your resistance immediately And you fall on your face before God and say, forgive me. I must return to this standard. I must. It's called repentance. It is a matter of life and death. But that is the reason for which the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. 
We have such a psychological so-called Christianity before us that the Holy Spirit is now only about good feelings. And if I don't feel good here, it ain't the Holy Spirit. But that's so false. The Holy Spirit is causing you to live holy. He's causing you to live holy. He's taking that which has been revealed in the word of God and revealing it to you. And then he's changing your life to live according to that standard. And so you see it. You see it. That's the answer to the charge. It's the Holy Spirit. So we must ask ourselves. We must ask ourselves. What testimony do those who say we may continue in sin so that grace may abound? What testimony do they bring against the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because that's what's at stake. And I would say as you're dealing with people who live in an antinomian age. That's what you have to ask them. You have to ask them gently and love and compassion. But you have to ask them as much as we have to ask ourselves. What testimony are you bringing against the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you saying it wasn't effective? Are you saying it didn't happen? Are you saying it's only powerful in as much as you create the power for it? But listen, Paul didn't only say newness of life. He said to walk in the newness of life. So this is also where Paul is contrasting the purpose of the law and the purpose of divine grace to make his point. That the law itself cannot cause anyone to walk in the newness of life. Not without faith. Not without faith. And the law can't lead a person in and of itself to faith. It can only reveal lack thereof. We saw that this morning in Exodus 32. And it is not because there is some defect in the law. If I may borrow the language of Paul, may it never be. But rather the law has a purpose. The law has a very specific purpose, and that purpose is to reveal sin and the need for divine grace in Christ Jesus. Holy as the law is, and it is holy, it is perfectly holy. Its purpose was not to save those under the law. It's why what the law could do is reveal sin and drive people to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It revealed their sin and revealed to them, I need to offer either sacrifice or praise to the Lord. There's some atonement that needs to be had because I'm defective. But it is to reveal their transgressions so that they may live holy. That's what the law was meant to do, that they may live holy and by faith before the lawgiver. So the false accusation against Paul was launched because his his accusers wanted to escape the demands of holiness. They wanted to escape the demands of holiness. They wanted to fight against the notion that the law could not save them because they believed they kept it perfectly. They believed they kept it perfectly. What do you mean it doesn't save me? This whole merit system, I've perfected it. What do you mean it can't save me? They, 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 they believe they kept the purpose. But listen to this. Just like people do with idols. Because the, the law wasn't the issue. It was their self-righteousness. They identified with it. As a means to their own salvation. That was the issue. That's why they charged Paul. They identified with the law that they erected for themselves. As a means of their own salvation. And all it produced was self-righteousness. That's what it produced. That was the fruit of it. 
That was the fruit of it. And even if they came in contact with the true law, whether it be the reading of it in the synagogue, whether it be the proclamation of it by the prophets, they didn't fall on their face and repent at wholesale. What they would do is they would continue in sin and either add to the laws or take away from the laws to justify their own sin. But I tell you, this is the theater of war whereby the doctrine of holiness and those who teach it are assailed today. You have to know this. Our lives depend on it. Once you begin to deal with people's idols and not only their idols, but those idols that they have erected to testify to their own self-righteousness, because that's what idols do. Idols say you're righteous based on the standard you've created. Those idols have been erected to testify their own self-righteousness. They will fight you. They will fight you if they are not born again to keep those idols and to keep themselves before those idols. Because true biblical Christianity and Christ alone himself is the only thing, Christianity and Christ himself, the only one who says to you, you are not righteous. And there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to be righteous. Only biblical Christianity speaks that way. Only Christ speaks that way. And it is his greatest, greatest triumph over all the idols. Why? Because he proves it. He proves it. He proves that he can change the nature. But listen, it's the theater of war. Some of these idols are made with hands and some of them are erected in people's minds. Some are made with hands, some are erected of the mind. Men create idols based on what is fashionable. Certain societies, it's fashionable to create them with hands. Certain societies, it's fashionable to create them in the mind. But listen, either way, we arrive at the same place. There is no justification biblically for remaining in habitual sin as a badge of holiness. And those who do so are worshiping idols. Well, no, I haven't built anything. Then you have idols in your minds. That's what Paul is saying. Well, no, Paul, we, we, we uphold the law. No, if you upheld the law, you'd be righteous. And you can't because you can't do it perfectly. The simple answer to those who believe it so is to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You have to test yourself. That's the word of God. That's the language of Scripture, testing yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I'm not saying I stand above anyone here in that. I'm saying we all have to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith in light of this, because that's what Paul has written. That's what the Holy Spirit demands. But in verse five, Paul shows where all of this leads. He shows why the doctrine of divine grace and holiness is a direct testimony of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat it. Just the end of that. The doctrine of grace and holiness is the direct testimony of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why it's at stake. That's why we have to fight for it, because you're testifying to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But within that, look at verse five, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It is about being united with Christ. 
That's both the answer and the effect. We are joined to him and testify to that unity with him in his death and resurrection. There is no use to sing about the power of the cross, to teach about the power of the cross, to write about the power of the cross, to conference about the power of the cross, while living contrary to the holiness demanded by the cross. All of those things without living according to the standard of holiness, it's all useless. It's useless. Might as well not do it. Sing Christmas carols. Don't sing about the power of the cross if you won't live like the cross is powerful. Who am I referring to? I'm referring to the world at large, sure. But listen to me. I'm also referring to those deep recesses of secret sins cherished and protected by modern evangelicalism. That's what I'm talking about. I'm taking my aim at that because that is the great danger. I know what the world is up to. I don't need all these reminders about how deceptive the world is. I know the world is deceptive. But judgment begins at the house of God. Begins at the house of God. But listen, I am also talking to you this morning. And I'm talking to me this morning. Where do you stand in this? Where do you stand in this? Are you identified with his his death and resurrection by way of holiness? Are you testifying to the doctrine of divine grace? Or is your life raising up false accusations against it? We must all test ourselves in these things constantly and be found true if indeed we are in Christ. Amen. Praise God. Let our hearts be glad and encouraged. I mean that. If these things are true of us, we have to find our solace in that. But... If we are found a lie and and we uh, oppose him and we pretend to be with him, we have to come to terms with that as well. Because that's what Paul is saying. That's what he's saying in the text. And he's not talking about the irreligious men. He's talking about the religious men. As we look at our text, we'll join next time. We'll look at verse 6 next time. Along with verse 7. Along with verse 7. So even though we've touched on it a bit in the previous verses, I want to read it to you now, uh, verse 6 and 7, because that's where we'll pick up next time. Uh, Listen to this. Knowing this, knowing this, he's talking about being united with Christ. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Listen to this. For he who has died is freed from sin. He who has died is freed from sin. This is, I believe, a bridge between Romans chapter, uh, what we'll experience in Romans chapter 6 here this morning. As we have introduced it, but also all the way out to Romans 8, all the way out to Romans 8. But it's this. The old man is crucified with Christ. The old man has been crucified. The old man was buried there with him. The old man was annulled from you and from the kingdom. The old man was never a part of the kingdom, but he was annulled from you. And if you're in the kingdom, you have nothing to do with the old man. For what purpose? 
so that we will not be enslaved to sin. We will not be enslaved to sin. Do not mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying we reach a state of sinless perfectionism whereby we stop sinning in this life. Because listen, I have, and I know, I have faithful brothers and sisters, some here, some in other parts, who are teaching the doctrine of holiness. You have enemies of the cross, avowed enemies of the cross, friends of enemies of the cross, who falsely charge my faithful brothers and sisters with that because the bar of holiness is too high for them, because they are antinomian to their core, because their sins have found them out, because their sins have locked them out of certain opportunities, because they are remaining at this hour in sin, and they know who they are. But they falsely charge brothers and sisters who are faithful with this with sinless perfectionism. They don't want to be divorced from the old man. But what we will do is the next time we're together, we will look to how this divine annulment, because that's what I call it. It's a divine annulment at the cross of Christ when he chose for himself his elect and the old man was crucified with him. It is an annulment. He has canceled your contract with the old man. It's divine annulment against our flesh and the old man who puts us at war. But now we are at war against the old man as we walk in newness of life. And listen, when we get to Romans 7, we're going to talk about all the intricacies of that. All the intricacies of that. So no one may mistake what we're saying here and charge us with the false teaching of sinless perfectionism, but rather fall before God, fall on their knees and on their faces before him and say, I need to live holy. I need to live holy. Let us pray.